closing it out. We have to send a great signal, and then maybe these people just say, okay, it's over now. Trump tries to finish off his GOP rivals, but with Nikki Haley surging in the polls, the chaos has got to stop. Is there still time to take him down? Plus, balancing act. President Biden says he's heartbroken by civilian deaths in Gaza, but that it's still not time for a ceasefire. Hamas has already said publicly that they plan on attacking Israel again. Is he out of step with most Democrats? And out of order. It was a clean shot to the kidneys. The new Republican speaker grapples with the House in disarray. What can the GOP majority get done? I want my Republican colleagues to give me one thing, one, that I can go campaign on and say we did. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics Sunday. I'm Manu Raju. Everybody can now go home. The 2024 primary race is basically over. At least that's what the message that former President Trump had for his Republican challengers yesterday in Iowa. The first in the nation contest is still about two months away, but the runaway frontrunner says he's ready to wrap it up there and just move on to the general. Based on the polls, it looks like we're in good shape. But, you know, the worst thing you can do is say, oh, you know, we're going to stay because he's leading by so much. Get out and vote. Because there have been some bad surprises. We have to send a great signal. And then maybe these people just say, OK, it's over now. It's over. we got to end it because we have to focus on crooked Joe Biden and the Democrats. He may be confident, but that didn't stop him from whipping out all his nastiest nicknames for his top two competitors, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Both of them are ramping up their own critiques of the former president, but are still struggling to emerge as a true Trump alternative. Nikki Birdbrain, sir, I will never, ever vote against you. You are the greatest president in my lifetime. Two months later, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to announce my candidacy. It's Birdbrain. I know her well. She's not up to the job. It's the chaos of it all, right? And so I think he means well. But the chaos has got to stop. Ron DeSantis, I got him elected. Now he's finished in 28. He's got no chance in 28. He's got no chance. I view his candidacy as high risk with low reward because I think as a lame duck with poor personnel and the distractions, it's going to be hard for him to get this done. Time is running out, though, for Haley, DeSantis, or any of the other Republicans to close the wide polling gap between President Trump and the rest of the race. The Iowa caucuses are on January 15th, New Hampshire eight days after that. So if President Trump wins big in Iowa, is it all over for everyone else? Let's break this all down with our great panel this morning. Wall Street Journal's Molly Ball, CNN's Isaac Dover, Tolu Alaronipa from The Washington Post, and Julie Davis from The New York Times. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining me. It's a lot to chew on after this week. Pretty chaotic week. We'll get to all of that through the course of the show. But just about the Iowa and the dynamics in the race. We're getting closer and closer. We're less than two months away. Trump is telling his rivals that he can win. If, if he wins Iowa, it's all over, essentially. Is that the case? I mean, the last Iowa caucus winner when there was not an incumbent president was George uh, W. Bush. But So Iowa doesn't necessarily pick winners, but... Is he essentially, will that be the end of it, do you think, if he pulls it away in Iowa? Uh, it could be. It might not be. I think, look, Trump himself did not win Iowa in 2016 and then went on ben to, Cruz of course, did. win the nomination. So it is not 
uh, by definition the case that whoever wins Iowa runs away with it. On the other hand, the margins that we've seen for Trump in all of these polls look pretty prohibitive in the early states as well as overall nationally. Uh, but Iowa is definitely somewhere that uh, DeSantis in particular, but really all of the Trump rivals see as their opportunity. Uh, but then you have New Hampshire, which is a very different electorate, different uh, Republican primary electorate, given the open primary, independents mm -hmm. potentially voting. Uh, so I think there is, at least hypothetically, an opportunity for someone who's not as palatable to that very socially conservative Iowa electorate uh, to then uh, you know, make inroads in New Hampshire. That had been Nikki Haley's strategy, but as we've seen her rising in New Hampshire, we've also seen her rise in Iowa. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't necessarily just have to focus on one state. Yeah, and look, there was always a change in the, the dynamics of a race after a state, the polling changes, the momentum changes, people drop out. So there's a lot that, can, that will happen uh, after that, that uh, plays out. Finally, we're seeing some of these candidates, the rivals, going after Trump a little bit more directly. You saw DeSantis and Haley there attacking him on a whole range of issues. Are they having any impact, though, on Trump in this race? Based on the polls, it doesn't seem like a lot so far. But look, the polls can change a lot. Four years ago at this point in the Democratic race, it didn't look like uh, the way it turned out in Iowa and New Hampshire exactly. But also, to your point, uh, Joe Biden came in fourth in Iowa and he came in fifth in New Hampshire. And he is the, he was the nominee like three weeks after that. Mm -hmm. And obviously he's the president. Uh, the, the issue here is that these candidates are trying to figure out over and over again how they say to these Republican voters who clearly like a lot of pre what President Trump did, a lot of who he is, a lot of how he goes about things, say, yeah, we're just like him except better in this way that is nuanced, but we're not attacking too much and not turning them off. And it's really a, a difficult thing to do. I don't think anybody came into it with a clear theory of how to do it, and they are still uh, circling around way, ways at it. And the electability argument just simply has not worked with a lot of Republican primary voters, even though Republicans have struggled in the last several election cycles in no small part. Thanks to Donald Trump, we started to hear more about the attack about his age. Ron DeSantis uh, this morning on State of the Union invoked the fact that Trump would, is 77. He'd be the oldest person ever to be elected president uh, if, he, if he wins next year. Biden turns 81 on Monday, but DeSantis was not afraid to invoke Trump's age. That Donald Trump would actually be older on January 20th, 2025 than Biden was on January 20th, 2021. Look. When you get to this point, the presidency is not a job uh, for somebody that's pushing 80 years old. I just think that that's something that has been shown with Joe Biden. Father time is undefeated. Donald Trump is not exempt from any of that. Is it going to work? Well, we've seen this argument before. We've seen it from Nikki Haley when she first started her campaign saying we need a new generational yeah. leader. Competency tests Competency all that. What happened to that? Now it's becoming much more explicit. Before it was a little bit more implicit, trying to focus on Joe Biden and sort of by proxy also attack Donald Trump. Now it's more explicit. You're seeing people like Ron DeSantis saying, if you're pushing 80, you shouldn't be president. I wouldn't be surprised if you also hear something similar from Nikki Haley as they try to make this a two-person race. They try to make a contrast between themselves and Donald Trump, not just there's contrast with Joe Biden, who they want to face in the general election, but they need to really focus on making this a two-person race in the Republican primary. And until then, uh, they're going to try different strategies. Yeah, I mean, that's the question too, right? How is it too late to find a, a true alternative, given that 
these, these Trump opponents are all dividing up the anti-Trump vote. Just look at the polls. Nikki Haley has had a good week in the polls. Donor support has been rising, but still the anti-Trump vote is being divided over several candidates here. In New Hampshire, he, she's up to 20%. Trump's still up 40, 43% there. 53% Trump is winning in her home state of South Carolina. She's up to 22%. DeSantis and Haley are tied at 16%. You know, she's getting some good headlines, too, as you see from our uh, graphic there about how donors are moving towards her. But uh, what is her actual path for defeating Trump? I don't know that she's found one. I mean, I think she is definitely looking for one. And I think, you know, clearly you play the sound of her saying, you know, enough with this chaos. Um, I think that re that message is resonating with, and that is part of the reason you see some of the donors going to her, is that people are starting to get nervous that as Trump's rhetoric gets more extreme and people are reminded of the things that he did as president and are hearing about the things he would do in the next term, that they're starting to get shaky. But if you look at those polls, I mean, those are deficits that are very, very difficult to make up. Mm -hmm. And the thing with the, the age argument, too, as Isaac was saying, they're all trying to thread the needle of criticizing him but not offending his supporters, which are, you know, who are very ardent within the base of the party. Age is one way to do that. We totally agree with him on everything. It's just he's going to be so old. But it's hard for Nikki Haley or anyone to make that into a true path to actually beat him rather than just knock him down a few notches. And look, Christie's pulling 14 percent in New Hampshire. That just shows you there is this anti-Trump vote that's out there. But as long as they're all in the race, they can't figure out a way to get one person be to take him down. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, that donors are taking a look at Haley, and I think they all realize, especially uh, we had a story this week about a lot of Wall Street donors who are sort of uh, giving her an audition. Uh, these, this is a donor base, the sort of elite right uh, Republican establishment donor base uh, that would really like to see Trump stopped, that would really like to see a candidate they consider more electable on the top of the ticket. Uh, but and, and I think a lot of them were behind DeSantis early on, but then got cold feet watching him perform in this campaign. So they all know that the opportunity for anyone not named Donald Trump has to come through consolidation, mm -hmm. has to come through because you see Trump is under 50 percent in those two first states. That means that at least on paper, there is a majority of the Republican electorate that is at least open to somebody else. The question is, are they all open to the same candidate? Or are they going to go in different directions depending on how the field shakes and, out? And all this comes out as these candidates are still trying to figure out a way to what, how to attack Trump, as we've been saying. Uh, but you know, there was this development that happened on Friday in Colorado in which uh, Donald Trump, he won this race. There's an effort to try to deny him to being on the ballot, alleging that he had, because he had been engaged in an insurrection, he's constitutionally barred from, from being on the ballot. He will be allowed according to this judge, but this is the interesting thing here. The court that finds that the petitioners have established that Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6, 2021 through incitement. This is according to the district judge, Sarah B. Wall, saying that Donald Trump, the former president, engaged in an insurrection on January 6, and silence really from the Republican rivals or you would think that would be something that they would jump on but that just tells you so much about the way republican politics are desantis was asked about this on saturday he declined to comment said that i have not seen what she did so i can't comment on right. that a real profile and courage and uh, standing up to uh, where, where things are either on, on the, the, uh, the idea of it or on the politics of it. But look, I, one of the th dynamics that you see going on, both the Republicans and the Democrats at this point, is this, like from the old Saturday Night Live skit, like, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy, right? Like, the, the Republicans can't believe that Biden could possibly be competitive, that he could win. He's old, he's had all the problems that he's had, he's at 
39 percent on pop, uh, popularity, I think, in our latest CNN poll. Uh, and the the Democrats look at Trump and they say the same thing. Like how it, he's it, a judge in Colorado has now put it, at the, and all he's 91 indictments, everything there. How could this be a competitive race? And some of what you the, the fantasy that starts coming is that if the Republicans had someone other than Trump or if the Democrats said someone other than Biden, that suddenly the race would like crack open mm -hmm. and wouldn't be a tight race. But what the, the, uh, a lot of the Republicans are preparing for, and certainly what the Biden campaign is preparing for, is that this is gonna be a tight race no matter what. Yeah. And, and that it will probably go down to a couple of thousand votes in a couple of yeah. states uh, it, for all that we're talking it's about. It's a highly polarized direct, yeah. it's gonna be a close race no matter what, we'll see which candidates ultimately emerge. All right, next, Democrats are turning against the Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. How much will that hurt his re-election campaign? That's coming up. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. A top White House official tells CNN this morning that Israel may be on the verge of a deal with Hamas to release some of the hostages in exchange for a brief pause in the conflict. We think uh, that we are closer than we have been uh, perhaps at any point uh, since these negotiations began weeks ago, uh, that there are areas of difference uh, and disagreement that have been narrowed, uh, if not uh, closed out entirely, but that uh, the mantra that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed uh, certainly applies here to such a sensitive uh, negotiation. Now, a U.S. broker deal would certainly be welcome news. But there is very tough new polling out from NBC News this morning on how Biden is handling the war. His approval on foreign policy is down eight points since September to 33 percent approve, 62 percent disapprove. And while Biden is standing strongly with Israel, Democratic voters are split. 51 percent say Israel's military actions have gone too far. 
just 27% say they are justified. Our panel is back. I mean, look, foreign policy was supposed to be Joe Biden's calling card. He touted that in his first campaign ad. But that these numbers show that's that how voters view that. How concerning should that be for the White House? I mean, I think they are concerned, and it's justifiable <clears throat> concern because um, there is a big portion of the Democratic base that has clearly gotten less and less comfortable with the way this is unfolded here. Um, you can see that on Capitol Hill. You can see it in the number of, there, there's a, a small but very vocal contingent who have called for a ceasefire. There's a much larger group now that is not necessarily calling for a full ceasefire, but maybe humanitarian pauses. There was a big letter that the majority of Democratic senators signed on to saying, if you want uh, military assistance for Israel, you have to meet the, these following conditions. And it included making sure that Israel was abiding by the laws of war and um, all sorts of other things that the president hasn't necessarily been talking about publicly. But I think the case the White House is trying to make is that privately and through diplomacy and all these things that Biden is very experienced in, he is trying to you know, steer a more careful course um, with this policy with Israel and with you know, their degree of support for Israel's uh, offensive. That's a little bit harder of a case to make, and it, you see from the polls that uh, some Democratic voters certainly do not believe yeah. that, or at least are on the fence about it. There was a pretty big portion there of not sure, and I think those are the people that they really need to nail down. And he's trying to, the president's trying to explain more clearly his views about this evolving war. He published an op-ed in the Post this morning, rejecting calls for a ceasefire while also expressing sympathy for the Palestinian deaths. He said, to Hamas's members, every ceasefire is time they exploit to rebuild their stockpile of rockets, reposition fighters, and restart the killing by attacking innocents again. I, too, am heartbroken by the images out of Gaza and the deaths out of, of many thousands of civilians, including children. Every innocent Palestinian life is a tragedy that rips apart families and communities. I mean, this is an incredibly difficult balancing act, but by doing that, he's essentially angering both sides here. Exactly. He's trying to split the baby. He's trying to sort of speak to both sides of the issue, speak to the Palestinians and the uh, Israelis, and make sure that both sides feel that they are being heard. Uh, but the end game is something that has been very difficult to parse out when you hear the president talking. What happens after uh, Israel finishes this uh, bombardment of, uh, of Gaza? What's the next stage? You have heard the president say that, you know, you can't live with Gaza on your doorstep, but at the same time, there's no real explanation of what's going to happen afterward. And in the meantime, you're seeing thousands upon thousands of civilian deaths. And that's something that is becoming harder and harder politically for the U.S. and for the Democratic Party to sustain. And perhaps, perhaps one of the most alarming things for the Biden campaign is just what poll after poll is showing about young voters. That was a key part of his coalition. But even the new NBC poll speaks to what we've been seeing in several other polls. 46 percent among young voters, uh, among voters 18 to 34, uh, support him uh, in, in September. That was in September. 31% in November. Just 23% of 18 to 34 year olds approve of his foreign policy. I mean, I talked to a lot of Democrats on the Hill and they, they recognize that that is a huge vulnerability, young voters, as he positions himself for next year. And, and, and there's no question about it. Uh, and look, on the other hand, in 2012, or this point in 2011, going into 2012, there was a big question whether Barack Obama would be able to get the youth voters uh, the, the same at level uh, that he did in 2008, and he did. He actually ended up exceeding it, I think, by a little bit. Uh, so this is a question over and over again. <clears throat> it's more of a question, uh, given some of the policies that have been out there, of what's going on in the reaction to Israel, and that President Biden is turning 81 tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and that is a big thing. And uh, yes, uh, Donald Trump is... 77, uh, but 
This is a strange proposition to a lot of younger voters in America to think you could have a president at the end of the second term who's 86 or one who's 83. Yeah, and look, they, they, we've, there have been a lot of reports as how, including at CNN, about how the White House, the Biden campaign, is trying to shift its focus more towards Donald Trump and trying to draw that contrast. This is from our colleague Arlette Sines, who reported a Biden campaign official saying they're turning up the heat, brightening the spotlight on exactly what it would look like if he, Donald Trump, is allowed back in the White House. And they want headlines like what we saw at Axios, The Times, and Washington Post about what a next Trump term would look like. That's to some saying we should have done this or the democrats the biden campaign should have done this earlier but that is clearly the new focus or increased focus at this point in the campaign that's right that's the main argument that you will hear from uh the biden's allies in the democratic party when you bring up these these enormous deficits among youth voters is at the end of the day they don't think these are people who are going to vote for trump these young voters this 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 younger generation uh, is further left, and I think they're, the way that uh, these a lot of young people have reacted to uh, the war in the Middle East has has taken some older Democrats by surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, they do not believe that those are people who will turn around and vote against Joe Biden. Now the question is, does he still need them to come out? Yeah, I mean, right. That's if they the stay home, that could be almost as much of a problem. Uh, but they, uh, to the extent that they have confidence, they do believe that that's not a population that votes for Trump. Then we also have the uncertainty of who else is on the ballot? What other yeah. options are available yeah. to these voters? Because if they're mad enough for Joe Biden, do they cast a protest vote? For Jill Stein, for instance, who was a problem for the Democrats in 2016. So Isaac, you have some new reporting about, you talked to Kamala Harris yep. uh, about all of this. And there was also questions about how she is used, implemented on the campaign trail. Uh, but she, there seems to be some discussion about trying to win back young voters, in particular people of color. This is what uh, she said to you, Isaac. She said, we're going to have to earn our reelect. There's no doubt about it. I have a great sense of duty and responsibility to do as much as I can to be where the people are and to not only speak with them, but listen to them and let me let them know what we have accomplished. What was your takeaway from the conversation with her? Oh, look, the, the polls are a little bit all over the place on, on these things, but uh, Joe Biden is clearly having trouble with younger voters and, and uh, black voters in particular, voters of color more broadly. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, in a number of these polls, including the New York Times poll from two weeks ago, is rating better with those voters. And she, it, it's some, in some ways, it's like uh, bad and worse. Like it's not like she's great with these voters, but this is an election, like I was saying, that many people are, including the Biden campaign, think is going to be won on the margins by slivers of votes. And there is a need from uh, both from the Harris perspective of this and from the Biden campaign perspective overall to have her deployed in a way that will help draw some of those voters in. Now. Uh, the trick, of course, is that there are voters that she turns off, and that's why you see some of the Republican candidates who focused on, well, if Biden is elected, then uh, she'll be president. And so they have to not turn those voters off while yeah. they're turning others on. Complicated balancing act. All right. Coming up, 10 weeks of chaos. What Congress leaves behind after a bitter and chaotic period in the Capitol? It's been a long 10 weeks in the Capitol. A near-government shutdown, an uprising in the House GOP, ending the speakership of Kevin McCarthy. A little-known Republican elevated and is now running the House after an ugly three-week internal fight. And tensions running very, very high with huge issues like funding the government and aiding Ukraine to Israel now punted until a later date. And yes, there was even a kidney punch allegedly thrown. 
got elbowed in the back and it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys and I turned back and there was there was Kevin. I did not run and hit the guy. I did not kidney punch him. If I would hit somebody, they would know I hit him. I mean, is he 12? Come on. You look like a smurf here just going around and all this stuff. I think the chairman needs a mental health day. One thing. I want my Republican colleagues to give me one thing, one, that I can go campaign on and say we did. One. Members have been here for, as, as uh, Leader Scalise said, for 10 weeks. Um, it, this place is a pressure cooker. Now, Republican Congressman Kelly Armstrong summed it up to Politico this way. The House GOP right now is the same clown car with a different driver. Politico's Burgess Everett joins the discussion. Uh, Burgess, you uh, walk around the Capitol with me all day. Have, what has been really uh, fascinating is just about, you look at the these different caucuses and within Congress, House GOP, Senate Democrats, Senate GOP, they they tend to listen to their leadership. Yeah. Every once in a while they may break ranks, they may catch their leadership by surprise, but in the House Republican Conference, it has been completely every person for themselves. There is absolutely no team environment right now, and that's what prompts concerns about whether they can get anything done and keep control of the House. Yeah, and I, I think what's really interesting is for the first time in a few years, the holidays are saved, right? We're not going to be working in the Capitol right before Thanksgiving or for Christmas. All of our families are very happy about that. They are, but I, I think, you know, everyone at this table and everyone in the Capitol should be worried about what's coming in January and February because that dynamic that you just said, what the solution to this most recent shutdown fight doesn't solve any of that. It just kicks the can and actually makes it more complicated. There's now two funding deadlines in January and February. and. It's pretty much whatever can pass the House Republican Party at this point. And those dynamics have not changed, will not change, doesn't seem to matter who's speaker at this point. I mean, they can't even get their own party line bills through the House. They struggled to get the new speaker was forced to essentially yank three spending bills through the House. Those got pushed to the side. You mentioned those cliffs that were set up. And then there were just these huge issues. Israel, Ukraine aid, how do you deal with that? There is now an effort in the, in the, to try to get a deal on immigration policy, tighten immigration policy to, in order to get Ukraine passed. Republicans are insisting on that. And there are some really serious warnings that if there is no immig stricter immigration policy and Mike Johnson decides to move ahead on Ukraine, that that could cost him with his, potentially his speakership. It's extremely concerning to me, and it's a big disappointment. This is not what we should have been doing. That's sort of like strike one and two. The swamp won, and uh, the speaker needs to know that. What would be strike three? Uh, uh, not moving uh, actual border security and then trying to claim that you did. I mean, that is a real serious threat from Chip Roy, not moving actual border security and uh, moving and improving Ukraine aid. That has to be causing some real significant concerns about whether any of this can actually get done. Absolutely. I mean, by in, in the latest deal, uh, which again, like Burgess said, only gets you, you know, until uh, mid-January, early February, there's nothing done for Israel, nothing done for Ukraine, and the Republicans have made it very clear that they're not going to do anything unless there's some significant border restrictions um, added to the bill. Now, the Biden administration has said it's open to additional funding for the border and potentially some additional policy, uh, stricter policy on the border. But their idea of that and the Republican idea of that is very, very different. Yeah. Um, Chip, Roy, Chip Roy sponsored the bill. It's, it's basically bringing back most of the Trump era immigration policies. It is big 
very restrictive changes on the border that Democrats and President Biden will never be able to embrace. Yeah, I mean, like, what is what is the deal that Chuck Schumer and Mike Johnson can agree on in immigration that could unlock Ukraine aid? I mean, that is a huge question. But what's been interesting about Mike Johnson's, we've got some clues about how he would run the House since his very brief tenure. He initially moved forward this Israel aid package with cuts to the IRS that went nowhere in the Senate that was meant to appease the right. He cut the deal, cut the deal on government spending, but did not insist on cuts, really uh, caved to the Democrats to demands on that angered the right, but he had made the members happy on the far right about his decision to release surveillance footage inside the Capitol, January 6th surveillance footage. He he said this was in the name of transparency. I want you to see, look at this, how he explained this decision to release this internal footage about January 6th. He said, the American people can always be trusted to evaluate information and make their own judgments and decisions. When bureaucrats and partisan activists withhold data to advance a narrative, it erodes trust in our institutions. We must restore that trust. What do you make of his decision to release these tapes. I mean, all the pressures he's facing on the right, but also, you know, his statement there. He's not saying January 6th was a terrible day and our democracy should never happen again. He said he's concerned about the narrative that has been advanced on about January 6th. Yeah, well, as you say, he clearly is trying to placate the right and uh, give them, you know, appease them with various promises that he's made. This was a promise uh, that he made to, you know, Matt Gates and others that he would release these tapes in the name of like, accountability and transparency. Uh, but I, I think the question is, will that be enough? Because it is very similar to the Kevin McCarthy playbook. Try to placate the right wing by giving them some of the things that, that they want, while at the same time keeping the government open with democratic votes and uh, you know, tacitly admitting that the approach that they would like to see taken of severe cuts to government spending and passing appropriations bills is not viable. And there's no situation really that we can see where it would be viable. Mm. Uh, so, you know, he has used up his political capital at this point, his, this honeymoon that he had with everybody just being so exhausted and wanting to give the new guy who obviously came in with a very steep learning curve, wanting to, to give him some space to feel it out. Uh, that seems to be over, and it's going to be, I think, as Julie said, a very difficult January and February. How alarmed, I mean, you talked to Senate Republicans all day long, how alarmed have they been in just watching all the chaos that has happened on the other side of the aisle, and this impacting their chances next year? Yeah, I'm, I mean, you, you talked to Senate Republicans, they wanted to see the government funded into December. They're okay with doing a big year-end deal. Uh, to get the government funded. That's not what happened. And I think Speaker Johnson actually probably exceeded expectations because there were some Senate Republicans that didn't think he was going to be able to do this government funding plan that he set out, this complicated laddered CR that we haven't really seen in recent years. So, uh, you know, it's not hard to get a handful of the Senate Republicans a little keyed up about how the House Republicans are acting and making their lives a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, the White House, they must be loving this, right? I mean, Biden's numbers have obviously are not good, as we've talked about, but they can say, well, at least we're not those guys. They like drawing the contrast. They definitely like being able to say, point at these Republicans. They're starting to fight each other, almost physically in some cases. And I am, yes, 80 years old, knocking 81 shortly, but I am a steady hand. I'm someone who can keep the government open, keep the government running steadily. And Republicans, including Donald Trump, are going to take us to a position of chaos. Now, at the same time, 
the Biden administration wants to get things done through Congress. They have these two wars that are taking place. They have other things they need to actually get done. They don't want to have a government shutdown. And so while they relish the idea of being able to draw this contrast, they actually do need to govern. They do need to be able to show that they can work with Congress to keep the government open, fund the wars in Ukraine and in Israel, and make sure that all of these various legislative priorities get passed. So yeah. it's a tough role that they have in being able to take political advantage while also trying to get policy. Through. I mean, the challenge now is kicking this stuff into the election year. Oh, legislating always more difficult in an election year of campaigning the politics the primaries everything will get more more difficult if you can believe it okay coming up my exclusive with the man in charge of holding on to democrats razor thin majority in the senate hacks is coming back and so is the official hacks podcast with us your hosts i'm paul w downs i'm jen statsky and i'm lucia and we're the creators and showrunners each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. While Republicans are cleaning up a mess in the House, over in the Senate, things are looking brighter for the GOP. Democrats there face an uphill battle to defend their razor-thin majority. Endangered Democrats face re-election challenges in two red states, Montana and Ohio, and major fights in a handful of purple states too, including Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And it all got much harder with Senator Joe Manchin's announcement he would not run again in conservative West Virginia. This week, I spoke with Democratic Senator Gary Peters. He's the man in charge of holding on to his party's majority. He is trying to defy the odds. It just seems like without Manchin, West Virginia is essentially off the map, right? West Virginia is a very tough state. Joe Manchin had, a, had uh, the ability to win there because of his long career and the brand that he built. Uh, but we are focused uh, on uh, other states that also have those kinds of incumbents running for re-election. And those places like Montana and Ohio that are clearly going to be very challenging uh, uh, also have Senate incumbent senators who have proven that they can outrun uh, uh, the Democratic ticket at large. They have very distinct brands. They've delivered for both Montana and for Ohio, and I'm confident they're going to be able to win because of that distinctive brand. How would you advise them? Should they separate themselves from the president? Well, they, they have to always uh, run as the senator from that individual state. As people want someone who's going to represent Montana uh, in Washington. Some, they want folks who are going to represent Ohio. So it's important to talk about what you have done uh, in your time in the Senate and what your vision is uh, for the future. And here's what one of those vulnerable Democrats, Pennsylvania's Bob Casey, told me about running with Biden at the top of the ticket. But is he a vulnerability at all? I mean, does he drag you down or... or you don't think so? No. Well, you need to run ahead of him. A lot of Democrats in these swing states will have to run ahead of the president. Well, I, I, I'm going to win. <laughs> I don't care what the level is. <laughs> so, I mean, Gary Peters, you talked to, too, Burgess. I mean, you know, he is uh, essentially trying to replicate, to some extent, what happened in the last cycle. It was a good map. It appeared for the Republicans, not as good as this map. But abortion became an issue. Bad Republican primaries helped them. And... But the difference, though, is that this is a presidential election year. Biden's at the top of the tickets, and they have some red state Democrats. Yeah, you'd have to go back to 2012 to see someone like John Tester uh, winning uh, alongside President Barack Obama in a state like Montana. And, and that, those 12 years has 
ticket splitting increase or decrease, right? It's gone down. It's, it's more rare. People are not splitting their tickets as much. Susan Collins is the last recent example of somebody who's winning from a state uh, that the presidential uh, nominee did not win. So you have these two senators from red states. They have a proven track record. They've won in tough races. They're raising a ton of money. They have big personalities. Will that be enough to outweigh maybe a 15-point drag from Biden in Montana, maybe eight points in Ohio? I don't know. It'll be a huge test of whether uh, voters are just voting straight ticket down the line in these presidential elections. Yeah, and I asked Tester about this. He said, I don't think it makes much of a difference in terms of the president. He said, we haven't had a popular Democratic president since LBJ. <laughs> now, um, the... Uh, Will be, well, it's also interesting that Peter seems to think that there's going to be a possibility for pot to pick up opportunities. These are tough states, though. Florida and Texas, Ted Cruz and Rick Scott I mean, running as incumbents. He told me that he believes that there's a chance because of their unpopularity. Do you actually think that Rick Scott and Ted Cruz are actually vulnerable? Uh, well, certainly, if, if you look at uh, the two incumbents, uh, their polling numbers are very weak. Uh, they're not strong uh, in their state. Uh, we're going to have very strong uh, challenger uh, coming out of the primaries in those two states. Uh, and we'll be able to raise resources. Certainly, uh, uh, donors around uh, the country uh, have very strong opinions about those two individuals. Yeah, Democratic donors definitely want to take out those two. Question is, well, well, how do these Republicans respond? This is what Rick Scott said. The DSCC seems to think that you could be a pickup opportunity for them, especially. I wouldn't want to run against me. You wouldn't want to run against no, you? I wouldn't want to run against me. But I guess the question is, is he right? I mean, Democrats have had a hard time. Florida is trending Republican, Texas is Texas. Yeah, no, it tells you what a steep uh, map this is for the Democrats, that those are their pickup opportunities. Really, their only pickup opportunities, and they are, let's be honest, very, very long shots for the Democrats. And the other thing that, you know, uh, they may not have to look forward to this year is those messy Republican primaries that created so many opportunities in the last cycle. Uh, Rick Scott was running the Republican Senate campaigns last cycle, and notably did not get involved and let those messy primaries play out. A very different strategy for the Republicans this time with Steve Daines in charge. He's been much more aggressive about narrowing the field and getting uh, the most electable candidate uh, as the likely nominee mm -hmm. in a lot of these races. That also could make a big difference and take opportunities off the board for yeah, the Democrats. We'll see how that plays out. Arizona is such an interesting state as well. It's very complicated. There are two candidates, that, <clears throat> excuse me, the Democrats and Republicans are pushing right now. Ruben, Ruben Gallego on the Democratic side, Carrie Lake on the Republican side. But what will Kirsten Cinema do? She's independent. She has not said uh, if she would run as a third party candidate. I asked Peters about that. He said, let's just see what decision she makes. I asked him about the impact that she might have on the race. He said, right now, we aren't deciding to endorse anyone in our races when I said if he would endorse Gallego. But Steve Daines told me that he's a chairman of the Republican senatorial campaign, that Cinema has no path to win. He does not see that happening. But she's, of course, presenting this challenge for both sides. Well, this is, as we all know, classic Kirsten Cinema. She, like, she doesn't say what she's going to do. She keeps everyone guessing. Nobody can figure out what her path or what her maneuver is going to be. Um, the, po the politics in that state are very complicated and are going to remain very complicated if she does stay in the race. It's going to be really uh, an unprecedented, not an un unprecedented thing, but a very difficult and complicated yeah. uh, thing for both parties. Um, there is a case, though, I think, for Democrats that if she were to stay in the race, that could actually help their chances of mm -hmm. keeping that seat. Uh, of course, she's an independent now, but, they, but she caucuses with the Democrats. Yeah. Um, there would be, some of the Democrats think, a much better chance of Gallego being elected because she yeah. may pull some more conservative or some right-leaning independents yeah. away from Carrie Lake. Very, very quickly. Does she run again? Cinema? 
it, it does not feel like it at the yeah. moment. I don't we'll think see. she would run we'll if see. the pet polls don't show a path for her. Yeah, we'll see. All right, we'll see. Thank you, panel. Up next, for his first year in office, he's become a larger-than-life character around the Senate, and I'm not just talking about his height. A look at Pennsylvania's John Fetterman next. John Fetterman began this Congress still recovering from the stroke he suffered in the heat of the campaign season, limiting his ability to speak. Then the senator was at Walter Reed Medical Center for six weeks after checking himself in for clinical depression. But now he's back and not afraid to share what's on his mind. And over the last few months, the freshman Pennsylvania Democrat has been quite outspoken, trying to solicit some laughs along the way about the hoodies he wears around the Capitol. I believe that it's not the person uh, that is made by how they dress as well, too. I mean, yet you're still willing to speak to me, and I'm in a hoodie, and you're in a suit. You know, if you would have showed up, you know, dressed like Spider-Man, I still would have been delighted to, to speak to you, because I know you're a professional, and I'm, I'm delighted to do that. And about being the lone Democrat to call on the Senate to expel Senator Bob Menendez. He says this of the indicted New Jersey Democrat. I saw polling about his... Uh, approval, like he's he's less uh, popular than uh, cold sores, you know. So, so the, my point is, it, it's like we really need to, you know, expel him. He even took a jab at Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips, who recently announced his primary challenge to President Biden, but used to be the chairman of a popular gelato company. One thing I could say about about uh, my colleague in Congress is, is that, you know, really made great uh, gelato. You know, I was buying that stuff for my wife for, for years. I had no idea he was here. Uh, but that's other than that, you know, I think he should just stay in Congress uh, and uh, running. It's not helpful, except if you're Donald Trump, he probably loves him. This week, Fetterman pulled me aside to talk briefly about Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullins threatening a fistfight with a witness at a hearing. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Big oh, hold, stop it. Is that your right. solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Oh, sorry, Eric, sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. The Democrat was surprised that there had not been as much outrage in the Senate from his colleagues over Mullen's actions as there was has been over him wearing a hoodie in the Capitol. And he told me, quote, it seemed quite odd. That's it for Inside Politics Sunday. Up next, State of the Union with Jake Tapper and Dana Bash. Jake has an exclusive with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Thanks again for sharing your Sunday morning with us. See you next time. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.